Hey guys, it's Briars. Just want to tell you what's going on down at uh, Meltdown Comics in Hollywood. We got Meltthology. Meltthology is a monthly comics jam at Meltdown every third Tuesday of the month. Here's how it works. Show up at the Melt at 7 p.m. and draw a page of whatever you want. At 9.30 p.m. we'll collect all of the art and $3 for printing costs. When you come to the next month's comics jam, you'll get a zine with everyone's contributions inside. There is no set theme, and all skill levels are welcome. Last but not least, Meltthology contributors get 10% off their Meltdown purchase on the night of the event. Go to at Meltthology on Twitter or Facebook if you have any specific questions. Ask for Chuck, and that is at Melt underscore Thology. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Pod Sequentialism. I am your host, Matt Kennedy. This is a production of um, the Meltdown Comics Meltcast and La Luz de Jesus Gallery, and of course of the Pop Sequentialism blog and traveling exhibition. And so this is a really, a really exciting um, episode for me because um, after I appeared on Kevin Smith's podcast, I got um, an email from my friend Jim Mafood, and he had listened to it. And was like, oh my God, you know, we, we bump into each other all the time. Yeah. And we've been in the same exhibitions and have um, a lot of the same friends. Right. And we almost never really have a chance to sit down and talk about stuff. And I think a lot of it is just, you know, it's in Los Angeles. There's always something going on and everybody's busy. And people say that and a lot of people, you know, it's, it's an excuse. But I mean, you are a busy guy. Yeah, You're like a supremely busy guy, and um, I'm always I've always got stuff going on. So it's it's amazing that I can I can use this show as an excuse to have a really great conversation right. with you. And I'm sure we're going to be you know hanging out all the time because yeah. it just makes sense that we will. Completely, I appreciate you having me on. It's funny because you know we're all stuck in our vacuum of working and making work, and I'm always in my studio these days that's where i really enjoy being mm-hmm. and uh but i listened to your appearance on fat man on batman with kevin and i was just completely blown away because i didn't really know how deep things went with you yeah. like i just didn't know your whole backstory especially with this city yeah and i love you know the history of things and 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 like the pop culture and comic shops and that whole history and I'm from St. Louis and there's like a nice rich history with all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff in St. Louis as well. Mm-hmm. And, um, I think the older we get, I don't know if you're the same, but I, the more I become interested in that kind of stuff. Oh yeah. So I just, I was having the same reaction listening to that show as Kevin was interviewing you <laughs> where he was saying every like five minutes, like really, <laughs> really? And I was like sitting at my artboard, like really? Like yeah. I didn't know all the like most of these things you were talking about, I did not know these things about you. And but you had known those things, <laughs> right. like like you you knew about right. you know Panic House and you knew yeah. about you know Meltdown yeah. and Fantastic Store before that. Yeah, and yeah, all these different things. And and it's funny because I think a lot of people that I know, I've got a lot of different friends from a lot of different walks of life, and mm-hmm. some of them when they meet each other, they don't realize that they both know me. Right, and they could be friends for ten years, and yeah, just because yeah. of the different circles that people hang out in, sometimes that they don't always come across. And until recently, I wasn't somebody who threw like big birthday parties or something where everybody came in. And I'm right. like, well, you know, 
as, as you get older, it's kind of like, yeah, I want as many people around as possible yeah. because you never know if you're just going to fall off a cliff. It's weird. And it's also like, you know, my immediate circle of really close friends out here are all freelance artists yeah. like me. And we, there's times where I just don't see people yeah. for like three weeks at a time or something because we're all just in our studios and that's mm -hmm. where we're supposed to be. But, you know, we're... We generally will just get to the point where we're texting or emailing each other like, hey, you still hanging in there? Like, yeah, cool. Your new stuff looks good. I saw it on Instagram or whatever. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy that social media is the way that we sort of see that people are still alive yeah. and healthy. It's like, oh, oh, proof cool. of life. Finish that project. That's cool. Looks proof cool. of life. Looks I great. see a drawing. I see a painting. This yeah. is a picture of his hand in there. It, yeah, like right. um, like Autumn Turkel I hadn't seen in, in months. And right. um, because he's been working on top secret movie poster projects, I'm sure. And he finally came up fair and he's like, what are you doing on, on Sunday night? Yeah. And I'm, I don't know on, um, on Saturday night, I think it was. And um, oh, I'm wrong again. It was Friday night. And I was like, oh, well, nothing, dude. What are you up to? Sure. And, um, you know, it was like Deadpool. We got to go see Deadpool. Oh, I'm like, right. absolutely going to go see Deadpool. How was did. that? I, I loved it. I thought it was fantastic. I, I'm, I'm going to see it. Yeah. I don't see all the superhero movies, but that one in particular looks yeah. like, oh, they got the tone. And the... Yeah. Yeah. They definitely did. I, I do. I'll say this, that I think that it's a prime example of a movie after Guardians of the Galaxy the same way that Fargo is a golden example of a movie after Pulp Fiction. Okay. But some people think Fargo's better than Pulp Fiction. Yeah, that could be debatable. But so, it, I mean, you know, it depends, you know, what your taste is, I guess. Yeah. And, and what your fundament is. Yeah. But that, um, I think you'll love it. I think you'll enjoy it. Now, the um, another great thing, and, and, and now it's going to be me gushing a little bit, and it's kind of like, well, I started looking at kind of your resume, and I'm like, well, I'm like I've known I've known Jim Mafood's name for a really long time, yeah. and I know I've seen him around for probably fifteen to twenty years. Yeah, and just like and we lived two blocks apart. Didn't know didn't know that <laughs> for about for eight years. Heard I your think. stories, yeah. and so I lived on Gardner, and you yeah. lived on. A, we won't say. Yeah, <laughs> we don't want people knocking on your door. But I'm um, within the same neighborhood and around Meltdown. Right. I lived there for years, and um, we probably bumped into each other in restaurants in oh, just sure. places all the time. Because that so, neighborhood, I, it's rare because I can walk everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Being right off Sunset Boulevard and I can walk to Meltdown. That's been my hood for like 13 years yeah. now. And then I did a year in Burbank before I moved to Hollywood. It's like I lived a I year paid in my Burbank. Valley yeah. dues. I went backwards. So I went from Hollywood back and out towards Pasadena. I kept going oh, okay. further and further east. And um, I went a coup. My, my wife lived a block and a half from the beach when we met. And yeah. I got her to move to Pasadena. So oh, it's a big sacrifice. I want a coup a, there. Yeah. If you're like a beach person, that's yeah. a huge deal. Cause it's weird, man. All my friends that live on the West side mm -hmm. by Venice and stuff, I just don't, don't really see, them see them ever. Nope. It's a classic LA thing to say. Yeah. We're all, we all sound so lame saying it, but yeah. it's like, eh, unless you come to my name. I have and, friends that live know. across the country that I see more often than my friends on the West side. It's sad. Because you'll make it's time crazy. for them because they got on a plane. Yeah. As opposed to getting on the four oh five or on the ten or something. Right. But um so you have a personal connection to Kevin Smith. Yeah. As well. You illustrated the Kirk's comic. Yeah. And um you had your own comics before that. Yes. And you'd worked for Marvel and you'd done Spider Man. Yeah. And um and then you worked at Titmouse too. Yeah, just some freelance, but those are my boys. Yeah. Love those guys. So 
talk about all this. Like this, this to me is incredible. So you came from St. Louis in what year? What year did you come out here? Yeah, I, well, I grew up in St. Louis and I left there after high school when I was 18, went mm-hmm. to art school in Kansas City, Kansas mm-hmm. City Art Institute, did four years there, graduated, was dating a girl at the time who was moving to Tempe, Arizona. Mm-hmm. And I had never been to Arizona, never seen Arizona, but I was looking for a way out of the Midwest. So right. I was in love with her and we I blindly just moved to Arizona, man. Is we that just... the same school David Mack went to? No. Kansas City Art Institute? Right. No. Okay. Um, but in my class was Nathan Fox. Okay. Who's a brilliant illustrator, has worked for every major comic book publisher, and is now the head of illustration at SVA mm-hmm. in New York. And him and I still talk. We're still buddies. And then I was roommates with Nathan. My other roommate, brilliant illustrator named Mike Huddleston, mm-hmm. who just illustrated Guillermo del Toro's The Strain comic book at Dark Horse. Nice. And so, you know, I had that art school thing of like, the art school was in the projects, mm-hmm. horrible neighborhood. We were all dirt poor, but we had like the classic like Midwest big ramshackle, you know, ghetto house where yeah. it was all these brilliant starving artists on the same roof together. Yeah. And I got to see these guys work and their discipline and it really blew my mind. So, but anyway, I moved to Arizona and then Arizona was like, the, in 97, I... um I got the gig doing the Generation X underground special for Marvel. This mm-hmm. very weird, subversive Generation X X-Men thing. Mm-hmm. One this, shot. This is after Chris Picello. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And and Scott Lobdell was writing them monthly. And I met Scott Lobdell at a comic book show back in St. Louis in like 96. Showed him all my self-published stuff I was doing at the time, zines, comics. Mm-hmm. And he's like this is fantastic. I'm going to bring this back to New York. And I was like, he's not going to do anything. And then a couple of months later, this young editor from Marvel named Jason Liebig called me up and was like, Scott Lovedell showed me all your stuff. I think it's brilliant. Like we should do something. Mm-hmm. You should do like a thing for Gen X, you know, an annual or whatever. They wind up giving me this weird underground special that at the time the X-Men offices were in a bit of disarray mm-hmm. and Jason was able to sneak this under the nose of like Bob Harris and everybody. And it came out. And so I had the samples of it and I brought that to San Diego in 97. And that's when I met Kevin mm-hmm. and Kevin and Bob Shrek had just teamed up and Shrek had just formed Oni press right? with this guy, Joe Nosmack. I showed Shrek my stuff. They were looking for the artist of the clerk's book. They had the Gilbert Hernandez illustrated cover already in the booth. Right. So they had the cover. But Shrek was like, I I think you need to meet Kevin. And I was already a fan of his flicks. And mm-hmm. so I you know, I met him and Scott Mosier. And then it was it was like a couple of weeks later they called me and Shrek was like, Could you do some sketches for us? And that eventually led to me getting the gig. And then, you know, I mean the, Kevin and his whole crew, like they were really great to me. You know, they definitely Everybody seems amazing. Yeah. I mean I, mean, I those, gotta say it. I think it's I've said this in other interviews, but like those dudes just being from Jersey, like mm-hmm. they reminded me of my friends in high school from yeah, St. Louis, like exactly. just down home. And my friends from Massachusetts. Like guys yeah, yeah. talking smack, smoking yeah. cigarettes and just into music, comics, yep. you know? So there was no, there was no like barrier to, to like jump over. Like once we were in and the book, the book came out, the first clerk's book came out 
and it was a huge success. I mean, it sold out like nine or 10 different printings. Wow. So I was instantly, you know, kind of put out there in my name. And then for me, it was awesome because I got to do all these signings with Kevin at, you know, the, the original Golden Apple on Melrose. Yeah, over by the high school. When Bill yeah. was still alive. Yep. Um, you and Kevin were talking about that spot. And yeah. that was my first in-store signing, man, was at that historic Golden Apple with Kevin. And that's like the comic book hands in front of man's Chinese, yeah. you know, to people who, who don't know what that yeah. is now, that it was such a famous comic book shop that there were a handful of comic shops that seem to win these awards in the back of, of publications like Amazing Heroes. Right, Amazing and Heroes. And then Wizard and, you know, CBG had their awards that they gave to shops. Mm -hmm. And Golden Apple would always win these awards. And so when I came out here um, and Golden Apple was on Melrose, and of course I didn't have a car, and I lived on Hollywood Boulevard. And Gaston was my roommate because yes. I sold my comic book collection to them. And that then idea blows me away, too. That I didn't, I didn't know you guys were roommates. Yeah. So that is crazy too. Yeah, me, me, Gaston, and Pancho, and then Pancho moved out, and then um, my um, one of my high school, uh, one of my best friends since kindergarten moved in, and when um, he threw a party and we got kicked out when Gaston was had to go back to South America to get his citizenship to come back because oh, they really? just came here when he was like ten or twelve. But he wasn't a citizen. No, he had to oh. go back when when he at a certain point they're like, okay, we're offering amnesty. You know, oh, I didn't know it was that. the Clinton years, you know, and yeah. um, and so he went down and he had to get his birth certificate and come back okay. and actually apply. And while he was out of town, um, my my best friend since kindergarten, Todd Harvey, I'm going to give him a shout out, threw a party that caught a little out of hand and <laughs> the entire um, Hollywood Police Department showed up in front of the building. And when I got home, I was out with some friends. I got home and. And it was, there were like 400 people oh, in this apartment. It, and I was like, oh my God. And I found Todd. He was like in the kitchen. He was like holding his head. He's like, oh my God, I don't know how to get these people out wow. of here. And That's I'm not like, a control party. I know. It's and, a good party. Yeah, and so I was like, cops. And the um, everybody left. And then the landlady, we went out and the landlady put a lock on the door. Just right then and there. While we were out. Okay. Like had it ready to go. And so we were like kind of couch surfing and stuff yeah. for a little bit. But um, when he came back, um, we ended up, uh, other roommates came in. There was these English guys and it was hilarious. They were on the other wall of where my bedroom was. And they would wake each other up by farting in each other's faces and then getting into fistfights. Oh, jeez. But it was hilarious it's like to the hear. young ones. It was totally the young ones. Absolutely. Like, you're like, I'm living in a weird British strange <laughs> sitcom. Sit yeah. That isn't funny for me. <laughs> it was actually kind um, of funny, though. The, the, you talking about Gaston reminds me of something I wanted to ask you. You were talking about you, Gaston, and Danzig yeah. got the entire Lobo's issue back. of Lobo's back. And um, I'm obsessed with Bisley's yeah. late 80s, early 90s work, the Doom Patrol covers, yeah. those first two Lobo books. Brilliant. Yeah. So, so good. Did you, how did you guys get that stuff through Danzig? Because he was- Yeah. Um, well, Glenn wanted to own a couple pages. Like he wanted the covers and something else. And so um, Bisley was generally dealing with some general comic book salesman you know art salesman right it wasn't scott eater and it wasn't um oh, i know scott, scott dumbier but it was somebody else i yeah. think and so those were the only two guys really in town that were dealing with new comic book art you know okay. when we were when we were coming up like this and so um i think glenn put us in direct contact with um with either bisley or maybe through scott dunbeer 
and us, we all bought everything together. That's amazing. And so he took the cover, I think, and then Gaston and I split the pages, and we just sold everything. And the Holland brothers bought almost everything from us. Okay, yeah. I remember you. And then I'd wait like two that. years to get paid. Right. God, that that era of his stuff, though, like, um, I love his painted work, obviously, mm-hmm. but th- that ink, that inking stuff he was doing, that yeah. it was kind of a Sienkiewicz-y, also with a little Stedman thrown in. And it's just yeah. a very odd thing. Like, when I saw it as, as a kid, when it was coming out, I was like, oh, Bisley. Everybody loves mm-hmm. Bisley. Bisley's the man. But looking at it, I recently got back into it, like, three or four years ago, and became obsessed with it because it's like the line work is really really insane man like yeah. someone needs to do a deluxe like reproduction of that or an artist edition well hey deadpool or... just did well i would imagine that somebody at dc knows to do lobo yeah you know like yeah that's I... an, the absolute natural thing to do would for them be for them to do lobo I could maybe see that. in a more purely joyous way you do ambush bug but it wasn't a very right. popular oh, wow. comic ambush bug yeah keith giffen keith giffen you know, See as they that? start bringing the Legion of Superheroes into stuff. And... Yeah. Wow. Um, but yeah, that, that I'm, I wish I could buy more original art or trade mm-hmm. more original art. So when I heard that story, like that was such an obscure thing. You guys are like, we had the uh, Lobo's back, like the first, <laughs> was the first book. First issue? I think it was the first issue. And, and I think we also had the second. Okay. Was, and um, I think one person bought almost all the pages for one of them, and then the the I think the second was actually when the Holland brothers bought a lot of stuff from us, but the um, you know, a guy that came up around that same time, you remember White Trash? Yes. And so that artist, what's that guy's name? Oh my Jeremy God. something no, or he's is that from com- New Zealand? And um, completely off. Oh, what is his name? This is going to kill me now because I I own a ton of his work. Did he have a studio fan. in Meltdown in the back? Meltdown, yeah, above. Yeah, and he killed himself. Yeah. Yeah, I remember having a conversation with Gaston about that. Yeah, and, and uh, he was he was actually really good friends with my ex wife, and um, Aaron was his best friend. Aaron ended up getting a job at Bordner's. Okay, and um, his his stuff's incredible. I've been I've been trying to get his name out there as like, hey, yeah. if you knew comics in the early '90s and you're collecting an important body of work, you need to get. You know, a page from this guy. I can't believe I can't I think of his name I'm, right now. I'm it's on it's too. killing People me. listening are outraged. They're like, "How dare you!" I you know they're screaming into into um, their into their iPods. It's so and so. Right? Do you have any other Bisley originals in your collection? I don't have any. Okay. I didn't keep any of them. Um, it was it was too lucrative to sell at the time. I mean, the yeah. Kirby page that I got from Jack. You know, the Captain America oh, right, right. Bicentennial Centerfold, um, I had to sell when I needed money. Really? And um, there was another page that got stolen. Um, and I really wanted one of the Thor pages, and he wasn't he wasn't giving up the Thor pages. Really? He loved his Thor pages. Okay. Well, at least with, he did at the time that I was stopping by. And, with good cause? Yeah. Uh, what about Sinclair's original art? I don't have any. I almost bought the page from... Um, the Daredevil series that he just did with David Mack because oh, yeah. he drew me into it. No, what? Really? Yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> so the um You need to get that page. Yeah, I know, right? So I, I'm gonna have like to kill that. somebody now. But um yeah, David Mack wrote me into the storyline. Um I he he spent his birthday out here one year and there was nobody around. And so 
um, he called up my roommate, and I was like, we can't let him be alone on his birthday. I went and hung out, and I had this ridiculous silver suit that I got in China. Oh, wow. And he was just looking at the suit. He was like, where, that, where do you get something like that? You were just like, wearing a silver suit? This silver silk suit that I showed that up in. That sounds amazing. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and so David's like, he remembered it, and he, he had Bill draw. He described me to Bill. And, of course, I'm a lot taller in the comic, but um, I guess <laughs> Matt Kennedy is the lawyer that replaces Matt Murdock with Foggy Nelson's law firm in that final Daredevil story, that miniseries that Fantastic. they did. Yeah. So I was, like, super, super jazzed about that, but I always love Sankevich's stuff. And, you know, but you remember back in the day that um, as a guy who was super into his, his Moon Knights yes. and into in the um, New Mutant stuff that he was doing, which is totally groundbreaking. Right. That um, when Electra Assassin came out, I loved it. Most people didn't. Yeah, that's this what I hear from a lot of people. And even watching interviews with Bill from back in the day, he even talks about how when the book immediately came out, it wasn't like, you know, hailed as this incredible work of art that it is. People, it's sort of just over people's heads. But this had happened previously too. There was a run um, at, at DC when Mike Kaluta was on The Shadow. Oh yeah, yeah. That um, they replaced him on the ninth issue with I think Tom Mandrake or somebody like that, and it was a Tom stuff was much more like a Carmen Infantino, Sal Buscema type of right. blocky artwork, and right. not Mike Kaluta. Yeah, who is this? Kaluta's you know, something completely different he's, than that. Oh, like a creature unto himself, yeah. you know, an amazing, amazing artist, and um, he the readership of that comic that lasted nine issues in and it was not doing well. Right. Preferred Tom Mandrake's pencils. Really? At the time to my Kaluta's. Now it seems like, you know, the easiest thing to think of. Yeah. But there, there've been these little, these times in comics where, where you look at something now and, and then if, if you're into it, you're into it. But like, you know, we all love St. Cabbage and we thought it was great that he was doing this completely off the reservation stuff. Mm -hmm. But Overall, you'd you'd see it in the in the letters in Comic Buyer's Guide or even in Comics Journal. We'd think that he'd have That's tons of fans. Crazy, yeah. And I... they certainly supported his independent work, but that um the feedback was was really really crazy. Weird. It yeah. you know it's funny it, when Bendis became really popular at yeah. Marvel in the early certainly two, after 2000s. Sam and Twitch, yeah. He years he, after Sam and Twitch, right? And Torso, <laughs> yeah, which are all great, amazing. I love Torso, um, but he he had enough clout at Marvel that he was able to bring all these indie weirdos like me yeah. in for like one year at Marvel. We were all illustrating that Ultimate Marvel team up book he yeah. was writing, so each one of us got an issue, and it was all this weird, amazing. eclectic, strange stuff. And Axel Alonso, our editor on that at the time said what you kind of just said about the 80s where he was like, we all think this stuff is great and awesome and it's something very new and exciting for us to look at in the office. Mm -hmm. The regular hardcore Marvel zombies do not like it. Yeah. Like he, and then I did, I did a couple of fill-in issues of Peter Parker, this stuff. And mm -hmm. Axel was so, always so great to me and, and Bendis as well. But Axel would always say to me, like, I won't even share with you the emails that we get on this stuff. He's like, we love it. The hardcore superhero fans just don't really get it. Yeah. Like they just don't want something to rock the boat. They're they, really they want... locked into John Byrne. Yeah, you know, and then the the kind of 
Lee Field push forward of that that image look. Right. But Bendis is always really credited um, Jim Valentino mm-hmm. for having the foresight to grab to keep his comic alive because Jim was like, well. We're not just about superhero comics. That's not why we did this, you yeah. know. And certainly, Jim had done. Um, was it Normal Man? Yes. Yeah. And yeah. Did, did he do Neil the Horse too? I don't know. But um, he and he came know. out of Aardvark Vanaheim. So I mean, yes. you can't work around Dave Sim and not be touched by Dave right. Sim's ideas, right? Or probably and, and even Dave Sim himself. And but um, right. yes. <laughs> at a strange after-hour party <laughs> somewhere, Dave Sim is chain smoking and. Doing cocaine. Who I would knows? love, love to have Dave Sim on the show. I, I think oh, he's that would be amazing. The most important personality to come out of comic books, perhaps ever. And I did have Steve Bissett as my second guest. He was somebody that I knew as as a little kid. And um, I and listened he, to that show. Oh man, that, about that's he. He Sim, tells you where the bodies are buried in that yeah. show. I mean, it's Sim picking them up in, in a the limo. limo. Yeah, and... I just thought it'd be nice for you to see how the DC executives are coming to this convention today. Wow. And you're like. Yeah, you know, you know I'm mind blown. It, it would be amazing man, if someone did a documentary on even like on him, but mm-hmm. even just that '80s era of comic book. It'd be great creators because, like Bob Shrek has hey, told me, you know, we happen to know a few filmmakers. Yeah, yep. Bob Shrek has told me stories about the convention scene in the '80s and like, do you know well, some of the excess that was going that, on? That we, and we can't talk about on the air yeah. about some of these people. And we'll, we'll, <laughs> right. but um, there's there's a great book that came out, and it's funny because I, we carried it here, and I didn't even know that we had it, and now it's out of print. And it's the book about National Lampoon. Oh, I didn't even see that. And it's um like um funny, brilliant dead or something okay and um and i butchered that too that this is one of those episodes where people are gonna go bananas like you can't think of the artist's name you can't think of the name of this book it's when, late yeah when we go to the um you've done a bunch of these in a row <laughs> i'm the last guest for the day it's like we can just do that oh want. you're pulling the curtain back we're just but, uh, we're drinking straight vodka right now people it's all, it's all good when uh, when we go to commercial break i'm gonna have to cheat i think and look at my iphone but the um and i don't even have an iphone but the, you know, the, I always thought it would be great, you know, like you say, it's like to have someone cover that first alternative invasion. Like, what was it like at that yeah. mid-Ohio convention? And there's there's a couple of conventions in that era with all these big personalities that it really could be an, an excellent documentary, yeah. but it could also be a pretty great scripted film. Oh, man. Because these characters are characters. Yeah. And it's and, it it is it probably would be like fiction like stuff that you couldn't even come up with that actually happened. Oh yeah, that people won't believe it because and, it's just too unrealistic. But it happened, yeah. you know. And and this, it, I when I was doing script coverage and when I was doing a bit of script doctoring, you'd get these scripts and you'd read something and you'd talk to the writer and be like, oh, that this happened. I'm like, it doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> right, like, right, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> nobody's going to believe that this happened and it seems unbelievable. Yes. So it's like you have to find a way to frame that. You know, you talk to him and, and work on it and, and either fix it or you, you go through seven drafts, everybody gets paid, the movie doesn't get made. Right. But Too much going on with that. But that it, would be amazing. It would be incredible. It's crazy too, man, because like when I was a teenager – buying the individual issues of Cerebus, the aardvark. Yeah. Um, this is the Dave Sim book, whoever 
out there doesn't know what we're talking about. Yeah. But this was a groundbreaking black and white creator-owned comic book that lasted for 300 issues. Yeah. But on the back cover of the individual issues, there'd always be like photos of Dave Sim like partying. Yep. Or I remember this one as a kid, it's him like in Jamaica, like sitting there rolling a joint. Yep. And, or like hang out with supermodels. Like church and state or something. Yeah, I remember yeah. that. And yeah. To me, man, as a kid, like I had never seen anything like this. This was all pre-internet, obviously. Yeah. So it, to me, I was like, wait, a comic book artist can be like a rock star? Right. Like, I thought that they were just like cigar chomping, like Jack Kirby, <laughs> like guys with flat tops and grizzled old dudes. Like Dave Sim was like, Photos of him with like aviator sunglasses and scarves, yeah. like getting out of a sports car. Yeah. And you read the book and the book is this like really brilliant. And you imagine Gerhard li- took that picture. Yeah. <laughs> or, and, and it's it's like. His anchor. These guys were making this book while they were touring, promoting it and partying. The first comic book merchandise thing that I bought, you know, that wasn't an actual comic book. Yeah. Was a Cerebus t-shirt. Oh, wow. It was blue. This is how much I loved it. It was only available in baby blue, and I bought it. Was it the church and state shirt? This is way before this. It it just said, Cerebus, he doesn't love you. He just wants your money. Wow. And it was just a picture of Cerebus looking forward with his arms crossed. It looked like the classic Jack Kirby pose, you know, with his his arms crossed. And and I wore the hell out of that thing. And, And I think the second... You know, merchandise that I bought at the comic book shop that I worked at. Like the second shirt was like the Mage Lightning Bolt. Yes, that's you know, a classic. Thing. Matt Wagner can't beat that. Which I, I talked to Kevin. I'm like, how come you didn't make that movie? I know. Like, we came close. I know. Could you imagine? Um, I had the Cerebus the first half T-shirt when mm-hmm. they hit issue 150. It was a T-shirt with Cerebus in the football gear. Yeah, and I would wear that yeah. all the time in high school, and people would. Just be like, what? What is Cerebus? What is Cerebus? And I'm like, it's the greatest creator-owned cover. And you know, at the time when I was in high school, I mean, nobody was into this stuff. It was me, two of my buddies, my homie Jeff, my buddy Bo. We were like the only guys that I knew in St. Louis really that were into comics and like. Mad Magazine and Cracked Magazine. Yeah, my my you friends know, didn't follow me down the Cerebus path. Yeah. Like the guys at the comic shop that were 10 and 15 years older than me, they loved it. Right. But nobody my age was reading no, Cerebus. Yeah. And I'd try to explain, oh, he's an aardvark and he's the Pope and it's really cool. And they're like, <laughs> what? It sounds like the weirdest thing if you just describe it. You oh, have it's, to... It sounds like the, you know, the pitch meeting for the pickle. You yeah. You know, where like right. kids take off on a magic pickle or something, a movie that actually got made. Right. But, um... Yeah, insanity. But um, <laughs> we're going to take a little break here. And um, when we come back, we're actually going to talk about Jim Mafood. So, um, Imagine that. <laughs> we're going to talk about uh, some of the other amazing things. So um, you too, advertisers, can reach this prime demographic by sending an email to info at um, popsequentialism.com. We'll be right back uh, with a word from our sponsors. Melt you, the school at Meltdown, where they teach you the skills to make comic books. Some of the current classes include creating comics, drawing comics for kids, and the art of inking. Coming soon, there will be classes for short film writing, drawing basics, and kids make zines. Go to meltcomics.com and enroll now. Hello and welcome back to Pod Sequentialism. Uh, I am Matt Kennedy. I have with me uh, here today Jim Mafood. And um, 
I'm going to make him attest to this because he saw it happen, that I, I was going to look at my phone and, and figure out the name of the artist we were right. talking about who had done White Trash. And, and, and all it took was taking the phone out of my pocket, and I immediately remembered that it was Marty Emmond. Yes. So um, Martin Emmond was this incredible artist who actually also did a Lobo comic. Yes. Oh, and that's right. he had done Danger Man and had, you know, White Trash was kind of the thing that a lot of people remember him for. That was also being pitched for a film would make a great movie. Oh, wow. You know, Elvis and Axl Rose traveling across yeah, the country. Yeah, it'd be amazing. He is an uh, underappreciated guy that I think if, if people, you know, saw his work, they would immediately either recognize it or yeah. remember it or be blown away that they didn't know it. Yeah. You know, so it's just it's those weird. I'll show you. I've got some amazing originals. Oh man, I'd love I to have see them here. But um, I did promise everybody that we were going to talk more about you know <laughs> some of the stuff that you've been involved in, and we 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 kind of went on a gigantic segue about how doing your own thing in a field that is sort of married to format. Yeah, is I mean, sure, everybody around you can recognize the genius of of what's going on. But when the general public aren't aren't buying into it, you need an advocate. You need somebody who's like, it doesn't matter. Right. You know, it's like this is this is a flagpole title, and we're gonna we're gonna keep this going as long as we can. So having the guys surrounding you at Marvel was was fantastic. But what happened after you guys got to do the Marvel team ups and stuff? I mean, luckily for me, I was always a guy just kind of dipping my toe into that stuff, and I always had a fallback thing like doing illustration work, mm -hmm. album covers. And at the same time, I was always still doing creator own stuff at Oni. Yeah. And then you mentioned Jim Valentino yeah. in 2001, I connected with Jim Valentino and I brought all my creator own stuff over to image mm -hmm. because he was sort of the main publisher of image at that time. And yeah. I didn't really know that Jim was this like hardcore, like indie guy. So when we, Matt and started talking. I mean, he we were, we were just talking about like Robert Crumb and all yeah. this like super 70s. underground stuff. Yeah. And he saw all my black and white stuff and was like, "This is fantastic! Like, you should just like just come over here and and we'll take care of you." And yeah. so that you know, the Marvel stuff for me was always sporadic, and I I knew from the get go that I was never going to be like the monthly penciler on a superhero book right. at Marvel or DC. Like, it just wasn't going to happen. Yeah, and it wasn't something I really set out to do so i i always enjoyed and i've had good luck like jumping around from kind of like gig to gig and mm. I, I do comics at least i'll have like a new book or a new thing come out like once a year or mm -hmm. something uh but i'm always also doing stuff in all these other arenas that, that I, all pay better <laughs> yeah unfortunately yeah unfortunately it's it's strange man the the contrast of Comic book artists are the hardest working, most labor intensive artists I know. Yeah. And when I'm drawing comics, I'm reminded like, damn, this is a lot of work. Yeah. And then, but the money is the lowest. It's just very odd. I mean, it's the mirror of society, right? It's like, you know, we don't pay janitors what they're worth. Right. And they or work, teachers. Or teachers. And, you know, people who work really, really hard, work really long hours. And um, instead, it, it's it seems like the less physical labor you have to do, the higher pay you get. Yeah. Um, and that course that's going to be reflected in comics, and it's you know the editors, you know, it's like the the Dave 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 Sim showing up at the convention, like, hey, this is how this is how your bosses come right. to work. Right. You know? I know. Living that large. It's it's kind of incredible, and the the impact of having other avenues to be able to pay the bills. 
mm-hmm. means that if you stay in comics, you love comics. And, you know, I, at some point, I'm sure um, we'll have Bob Layton on the show. Oh, yeah. You know, and Bob Layton is one of the, the all-time great journeyman anchors. Was yep. a, was is a very talented penciler as well, but he's also an amazing editor. Yep. And so he's kind of this guy who can wear a lot of hats. And he realized very quickly, once he started working in video games, that it was foolish to continue working in comics for yeah, him. Yeah, man. You get that. Ta- I've had illustration jobs and you know, different things where you're exposed to this other money and, mm-hmm. and it's just like, wait, what? You're going to give me how much, yeah. you know? And it, it's just sort of, but for me, it's like, that is the money I use to, to save and put in, you know, my account so I can, you know, eat. And then you can go do a comic book project cause I do because you love, love it. it. Yeah. And, and then that kind of takes care of that, you know, but yeah. for the guys that are doing it day in, day out all year long, my hat goes off to them cause it is, a ton of work and you really have to, you know, be almost obsessed with, with the feeling and the idea of being alone in a room just drawing all day. Yeah. And so there's only a certain amount of people that that are, that are cut from that, you know, the cloth to do that. And I really, like I said, I really enjoy being in the studio. Sometimes though, it's like, after I do a series, like I'll do a mini series. Like I did my, five issues of Miami Vice remix. I did this Tank Girl three issue thing. Yeah. After that series is over, I'm ready to kind of like get out of the studio, go see the world, travel a little bit, do some cons, and then do a little bit of other type of work. Maybe paint, maybe do some big stuff where I can put my body into it. You know, but here's another crazy circle. It, so I have a Tank Girl tattoo. Yeah, and what, the guy that tattooed me was the original guitar player for No Effects. Oh, really? Yeah. Who is that? Um, that was Steve Kidweiler. And at a tattoo shop out here, he was or? a scratcher. He worked out of his house, okay. and he was amazing. But you got the tattoo while when while you I was were out here. here, yeah. And at, um, is it a Jamie? It's a Hewlett? Jamie Hewlett. Yeah, yeah that's my guy. <laughs> That's my guy, man. He was one of the trailblazers when I saw his work when I was in art school. I mean, I say it in every interview, but in it's deadline, like, yeah, that it was, was just the unreal. thing that I was like, "This is whatever this is. I want to be this. I yeah. want to do this. I want this energy, this sexiness, this irreverence." Mm-hmm. And then um, I wish there were publications like that still. I know, you know, Deadline was incredible, and and a lot of a lot of the audience is not going to know what we're talking about. But right. Deadline, and there were a couple other publications that were out of Britain that were had got pretty wide distribution, and a lot. And in the '90s, there were a lot of comic book shops that were also branching out into being kind of music shops as yep. well. They they import British music, maybe. And Jimmy Hewlett was doing album covers for Mega City Four. Um. A, a band um, out of, I think out of Kent, but they were um, definitely part of that Madchester scene as well. Mm-hmm. And so they were similar to Blur and Oasis, right. but they were a little bit more punk rock. And he was doing all these cover illustrations for that. So whatever the number one band in England was, so if it was somebody that was on the cover of New Music Express or Sounds, then um, he would draw them in his style on the cover of the magazine yes. as cartoon characters. Exactly. And um which for me is like ten times better than a photo of the band, obviously. Of course. Like, I mean it's, it's you know, know what are all the great movie posters, you know, from from nineteen seventies and, and before. Yep. You know, what and even the eighties, you know, like Drew Struzan is kind of like the holdout, the guy that um they were still paying to to paint yeah. movie posters. But I mean Bob Peake, yep. you know, Apocalypse Now and like uh, in every other painted poster, you all know that stuff. Yeah. That yeah. that stuff's incredible. And 
the fact that it's not being seen as a lucrative expenditure of money. I mean, what's a photo shoot cost? Yeah. I mean, maybe nowadays they're just like, oh, send, have the label send us a photo and they just run that. I do see that a lot. Right. But I mean, when if they are going to do it, then you could have the right guy do that band. You could, oh, yeah. you could ask the band, hey, we're going to have somebody draw you. You're going to be in the, our cover artist in two months. Who do you want to do it? Right. You know, give the guy it's, two months to draw this. Oh, man. I mean, if I was a band, I would be completely pumped and flattered that Jamie Hewlett was going to illustrate it. I'd be like, we don't need the photo shoot. We'll just yeah. let this brilliant guy draw us. But it, you're right. It was like this weird 90s thing of of like, I, I seem to remember too, it was like, you mentioned Blur and I feel like they were in like every issue yeah, just because they, they were. were the British band at the time yeah. and they're great. But it was sort of like more tank oral, more blur, yeah. more irreverent, whatever. Yeah. And it was I, a story about Manic Street Preachers on page right. six, you know. And you know, in the I was in Kansas City at that time, and it was hard to. I wouldn't find every consecutive issue. I'd yeah. find an issue here and there. I'd always buy them, obviously. And then Dark Horse did that uh, Deadline first USA collected yeah. tank girl book that yeah. I got my hands on. For me, that was like. You know, I was just blatantly stealing from that stuff. But I mean, we all <laughs> go through that. Yeah. But uh, even the British slang and stuff, as a kid from the Midwest, I didn't understand most of the stuff that was going on. But I, I just knew it was hot. I knew it was Whereas different. I had three Brits and, and the next wall over for me farting right. at each other right. and using those same words right. in that same time yeah. frame. But um, yeah, I mean, it's... I. I mean, I don't want to sound like, you know, one of these these old guys that's going to talk about how the, how the good old days. But um, I think the good thing is that because zines are now so prolific, you can get zines everywhere and that a yeah. lot of people are doing them, that that will eventually impact publishing mm -hmm. and that somebody will take a chance on something like that. Yeah. Um, but that the publishing um, model is different that obviously you're not hitting the circulation that anybody was able to hit right. in 1995 of anything. I know. And, I mean, what was Spawn number one is, what, 7 million copies. Ridiculous, man. I mean, if you sell 160,000 copies of anything these days, you are absolutely, you know, they're building a statue to you. Yeah. So the um, when you're getting gigs now in comics and you're still doing stuff through Oni. Uh, image for Im creator only. Image for creator only yeah. stuff. And um, what do you feel like now? Like if 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 Marvel is gonna throw you a gig? Um, yeah, I mean, I just did a book for Marvel last year called Howard the Human. It's like this mm -hmm. weird Howard the Duck one shot, and it's <laughs> wow. if Howard the Duck was trapped in a human body in an all animal world. Oh wow! And the uh, the main reason I did this book was my old friend Scotty Young wrote it yeah. and came up with the concept. So him and I, he's a brilliant artist, writer, mm -hmm. uh, big dude over at Marvel. And uh, he got this completely bizarre, strange thing past them. And yeah. we were sort of joking about it. And I was like, dude, if, if this happens, like I'm, I definitely want to draw it. Like, let's just do it. So, you know, the weird thing is I, I got my rate and everything locked in at Marvel years ago. Mm -hmm. And once you're locked in, you're locked in. But, um, you know, I mean, the rates they're offering kids now are lower than yeah. what the rate is that I established in like 97. Yeah. So that to me is disturbing on a fairness level, mm -hmm. you know. But for me, it's like I'll play in their 
playground to, to do my thing. And it, Scotty wrote the story for me to draw. So That's it's very cool. weird, very quirky, yeah. humor based. You know, it's like I said, they would never hire me to be like, we're going to have you draw a dark thing, <laughs> you know, or so I get, to, you know, I get to do that. And then I get to jump back onto like we did 21st century tank girl yeah. last year, which was a Kickstarter book. And just the fact that Jamie came back to work on the character and I was in the same volume as all these other brilliant artists, yeah. you know, and Alan pays us very fairly on all that. Alan Martin, the writer. Mm -hmm. And so I've been lucky in that I, I just sort of do what I want to do. And then if I want to do my own stuff, I always have a home at image. And then I do most of my art books through IDW just yeah. because they print such brilliant art books. They're fantastic. You know, um, I was so glad you brought one by. Yeah, and... that's the visual funk book. And then I have a coloring book coming out through them um, next Wednesday on February 24th. And then I have a, my next major art book is coming out through them as well. And it's called Sadistic Magician. And it's like my best sketchbook stuff in the last five years. Nice. And it's just, it's just all my crazy weird stuff, man. But they, once they sign off on me doing a book, they, I, me and my designer just make the book and mm -hmm. then turn it in finished and they publish it. I keep threatening the world so, with publishing comics. So I think uh, you should, man. Your your <laughs> level of uh, knowledge and everyone that you know, it's almost like just L.A. in itself, man. Uh, the city could just the uh, talent here well, could Burbank be, would be, could a, be a publishing house. Could be. Do you know what I mean? It's yeah. It's like all the people that live here. Sometimes I forget how many people are here in the same spot. Yeah, and, and like I say, you know, the, one of the stories that. Uh, I was kicking around for a while and, and it's, it's so esoteric that it, I just didn't know what the home would be for it. But, um, the city of Burbank is an, is an actual living, breathing character oh, wow. in, in the comic. So it's really super, it's like very Sankevichy. It's kind of like, you know, the street or something, I guess. Doom Patrol. Yeah. Which Danny, is actually, the street, Danny, the street is actually a Brendan McCarthy creation. Oh really? Okay. Yes. Okay. Yes. He, he swears by it and I believe him. Oh, you, you talked to him, didn't yeah, you? Yeah. He was my I first guest. listen to that one. He was my very that first guest. That guy is on some other stuff too he's brilliant he kicked off the british invasion yeah yeah not a lot of people really know that or I realize know. that do you think he's one of the more is he under oh he's incredibly underrated yeah okay. i mean because i mean he brought all the punk rock attitude into comics by illustrating the first punk rock comic in yeah. the uk and um working with pete milligan who i think is criminally underrated as well and i he's mean there awesome. are people that do know him because of x-force and everything but to me, Shade the Changing Man was was the best comic on the market for you know fifty six issues or yeah. something, and um and he, the ideas that he got away with, I mean, and to carry some of the storylines to the lengths that he carried them and, and kept them interesting and amazing, because you get Chris Pacello drawing it most of the time, right? But um that to me it was better than Sandman. That Sandman was easier because it was almost like an anthology, like right. oh we can wrap this up in four issues and move on. Yeah, it was very contained. Yeah, whereas. There was no such containment for Shade. It was this ongoing kind of really moody gothic industrial soap opera. Right. And I need um, to revisit that book, man. I don't yeah. have all of them, and I feel like it's... I keep hoping that they're going to do an omnibus because yeah. it, I mean they did that. Um, you know, Marvel did the Punisher omnibus, which is like gigantic. Is that the, the Garth Ennis the, one? Oh, okay, okay. I was yeah. going to say, is that the Mike Zach? Remember oh, Mike Zach? Of course. I, I paid somebody to airbrush a T-shirt for me, and it got <laughs> stolen 20 minutes after it was finished at Spencer's Gifts in Peabody, wow, Massachusetts. Uh, Spencer. Danvers, Massachusetts. 
of, yeah. of the Spencer Mike Zach, uh airbrushed Punisher. The Punisher number one. Yep. Wow. Yep. He, um, IDW just put out a uh, an artist edition of the Mike Zach, and yeah. I I uh, got one from them, and it's it's brilliant, man. Zach it's was fantastic. His Captain Americas were great. Yeah. Um, I, of course, the Punisher was game changing when that yeah. came out. I mean, that was the first one. The first comic, I think I went to the shop and I was glad that I worked at the shop because it sold out everywhere. Really? And you just couldn't get just it anymore. Yeah, it was immediately gone. And that was maybe, be- that was before Dark Knight, I think. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. I think that that Punisher miniseries predates both Dark Knight and um, and definitely The Watchmen. And that like that era, I remember being in the shop that I worked at Comics Legends of Lauren in Massachusetts. And... Um, at that point, I think Paul McCure had already left and um, Brian Keaty was the manager, but there was that three weeks in a row where three amazing series wrapped up oh, all really? at the same time. Wow. And it was Watchmen number 12 came out the week before Mage 15. Oh, man. And I think the following week was the ending of, oh, golly, maybe... um. Now I can't think not elect, of it. Not Electro Assassin. No, Electro Assassin, I think, had ended a little bit earlier, but there was some other kind of major series that sort of like wrapped itself up all at the same time. And it was like... That was the golden era, man. Mind-blowing. Yeah. yeah, like what it's, a great time to be in comics. It's weird because I was a kid. Uh, as a kid, I couldn't afford a lot of the, those books, yeah. like the prestige format. Like yeah. I remember seeing Dark Knight Returns. Buck 75 or something. Right? Yeah. yeah. And it's like, I remember seeing Dark Knight Returns on the shelf when it came out, but I just couldn't afford it because yeah. the regular comics were like 60 cents yeah. at that the, time. Well, those were like 295 or 395, yeah. I think. Yeah, that and was... for me, as a kid, like on an allowance, yeah. I was like, this is the equivalent of like 10 other comics. Like, I can't... All my paper route money went directly into, comic, yeah. into funny books. <laughs> as your parents as, called As my them? parents, because my dad called them funny they... books. My parents were just happy that I was reading. Yeah. Like, my parents were always down with it. Like, there was these really, really bad, um, like, flea market-style yeah. comic book sh- shows in I St. Lo- Louis. Oh, I love that. That's like... And that was at th- this place called The Coping House downtown. And my dad, it would only happen, like, one, t- two or three times a year. And yeah. my dad would always be cool enough to take me down there. But he would drop me off, and he'd be like, you got, like, two hours. Yeah. And I'd run in and just, like make my lap and just see what everybody was selling and yeah. then plan how I was going to spend my money. Yep. And then, I, you know, he would come in and walk around a little But After two hours, he eventually catch up with me and be like, we got to go. Like, I don't yeah. want to be. <laughs> and, you know, he's, uh, I don't want the neighbors to see my car well, in this lot. Yeah. No, <laughs> yeah. It, it wasn't even that. It was just, I, I think that he, he was just sort of like, I support your hobby, but this is just such a weird, bizarre yeah. world of these strange, reclusive outsider people. Yeah. You know, that, and again, man, it's like, this wasn't, you know, like what Comic-Con was. These were really, like, sort of, uh, not seedy, but these were, you know. A little bit, though. I mean, because they'd always, someone would be selling, like, knives at those things. And, you know, like, mace. Yeah. And it was, there was a definite crossover of, like, the Paladin press crowd and comics, because comics are very nihilistic. Like, the the whole Frank Miller Daredevil thing, and it's funny because I went back and, and reread Dark Knight a couple years ago, and I was mm-hmm. like, it didn't hold up for me. Oh, really? Yeah, like, I think that they've done it better in the films. They've taken so much yeah. from the book. I mean, it's in hard films, to... films, con- animation, yeah. like, it, you know, that the book is the blueprint, but yeah. it, it, it's it's almost like you're reading something that's been overly sampled. Yeah, it, 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 that is exactly the case. It's kind of like seeing... 
um what's the the french masterpiece um that fatal attraction steals you know it's ending from and then you go back and see it and you're kind of like oh okay right right but it's better in this other movie it was better in the original classic version and um but you know that they they nailed it so there's no reason to go back and and i did realize that it was kind of like a golden example of you know frank miller was this total kind of liberal um left-wing guy who got mugged in new york city and became the most right-wing guy right. it, was, it was like death wish happened to him that's an interesting observation and so his daredevil became death wish yeah but then um you know when to me and I, I of course i love that original run and love bullseye but the um when he came back and did the um you know the where they just destroys Matt Murdock's life, and right. they bring in Armageddon or Nuke or whatever his, his name was. Nuke, the um, the guy with Which the flag tattooed was in his face. Was that the one that David Mazzucchelli? Was yeah. Doing? Okay. Yeah. I don't have all those either. Oh man, that's that's amazing. Like, okay. Until Bendis came and proved everybody wrong that nobody could do a better Daredevil than Frank Miller. Right. That was kind of like wow. Miller oh, outdid himself. Yeah. You know, and it was amazing. But the um. And it changed it up a little bit. It wasn't quite. I mean, he was still. It was a very violent character. I guess it always was. Right. It's kind of one of the, the great things about the TV or the Netflix series is that it's very rooted in a little bit of the Bendis and a little bit of, um, you know, the Palmiotti run. And yeah. It's a little bit of everything, but they all work because it's still Matt Murdock. Yeah. It's still the same character. Yeah, I thought it was interesting how gritty they went with it i mean it's just like a bunch of dirty street fighting happening. yeah and, you know him getting his ass kicked a lot a lot which happened in the comic you know a lot I, yeah i was like oh wow this is uh brutal in yeah. some situations yeah because you, know? you think about it you see things happen you know there's comic book violence and then there's violence yeah and you know what's funny is that when it's been addressed previously like even in a movie like kick-ass yeah where it's still played for laughs and i think they went a little overboard in the second film and I didn't see that the audience went away it was kind of like this is a little too grim really yeah like it's, it's too no, much yeah it wasn't even funny like it, it was it was just too gratuitous and too violent and, okay and just kind of mean-spirited but um and you know jim carrey wouldn't even do any press for it because he was like oh that's know, right like, okay this is, this is really too violent i didn't yeah. realize it was going to be like this so he saw the finished product and was like oh. yeah I'm, I'm not promoting this wow yeah. okay but um, I didn't realize that's what happened. But I think that the series brings home the fact that you can't be a superhero very long, really. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the, yeah. it's a it's a rough life. Yeah. They touched on it a little bit in the beginning of the third um, uh, Nolan Batman film, where it's like, yeah, the guy, of course, his knees are gonna go out. Right. Look at NFL players. Right. And he's not an NFL player. Yeah. He's got a cane, man. Yeah. He's, he's gonna <laughs> need you know some some help. That's like, you know, when I first read Watchmen when I was in like junior high, that was the first time I saw superheroes portrayed in any Realistic. sort of three-dimensional yeah. level. And it really was sort of disturbing, yeah. very disturbing for me actually as a kid reading it because I was like, wait, whoa, there's like blood and sex and death and yeah. nukes and, you know, Cold War stuff. And I, I just had my fragile little superhero collecting mind of buying monthly Spider-Man comics. Yeah wasn't ready for like, you know, Alan Moore to just bring it that hard yeah. with being like, no, this is what would happen if these characters actually existed. Yeah. And in this strange world where like Nixon is still the president yeah. and all this 
surreal stuff. There was an interesting thing um, in Boston. I think it was at Boston College that a student, when it was on issue six, predicted what the rest of the series was going to be and wrote a term paper on the Watchmen. Really? And went through panel by panel and explained that this symbol means this and this and this. And apparently he was on the money on it. Wow. And I'd, I'd read that. And you remember what comics were like when they were coming out monthly, especially back then? The new issue would come out, you go back and read them all. Yeah. Because you, you knew to. there's only 12, there's only going to be 12, yeah. and there's a clue in there of what's going to be in the next issue. Exactly. You knew that, especially with, with someone like Alan Moore and, and to a lesser extent, someone like Frank Miller. So you go back and you'd read it again and again and again, and you just don't get that anymore in right. the omnibuses. You know, if you're getting it in one one serving. But you know what? I'm also a guy who binge watches Everything yeah. on Netflix. Everybody does now. Yeah. Do you um? So when you buy books now, comics, you're you're probably just a trade guy, right? I'm pretty just... much buying trades, but I understand why that's not a good idea for the industry. Yeah, but <laughs> you I know, mean... but it's also like I don't want boxes full of comics. Yeah. That I've I've I used to be surrounded by them. I've gone through you know these these years of collecting comics and then purging my collection. Right. I now have I think eight long boxes in my garage of just 1970s like Marvel stuff that I didn't read before. Oh, wow. That's good it's stuff, like though. runs of Avengers and stuff. Yeah. You know, it is good stuff in Captain America. But um, Does your garage smell like old comics? Well, I live in an apartment building, so oh. having like these these boxes is almost like a little ghetto in the building that I live in. Like I'm probably not supposed to have these there. Right. But they're low enough, and they're kind of like, I think I can get away with it. You're okay. Yeah, but I, I like if I'm going to have the books, I, I know that I, I'm in – I feel like I, I, I want to get rid of the, this is going to sound, you know, terrible, but I want to get rid of a bit of my collector mentality yeah. that I do collect a lot of things and it just accumulates and I'm married. My wife will not have it. With, and I'm glad that she has that attitude, that she's she, not an enabler. Sure. I mean, I I made the conscious decision to, to switch from collector to creator at yeah. some point in my life. It was basically late high school and college where I was like, I need to quit spending money on these things and bagging and boarding them and treating them like these precious objects. And I, I, I want to make the things. Yeah. Like I want to figure out like, how do you, and at 15 I was trying to like break in and I was trying to break in as an inker first and setting out like inking samples. You're a smart kid, man. All you know, this it's weird like... stuff. And I, I was just ready. And of course, rejection that's notices. like the parent who makes their kid take the tuba right <laughs> you know it's like you you can probably have a career if you're a good tuba player because how many tuba players right. are there it's like if you start now yeah for the time you're so no but it was, it was a conscious decision that i had to make that i think almost all artists have to make where you be, quit be, being a fan and you want to yeah. you start pursuing the craft and i was like instead of spending money on the books i'm gonna spend money on the art supplies yeah. and the ink and the paper and and learning the craft and traveling to the cons and making the photocopies to give to these editors. Yeah. And, and so that's what me and my roommates did. Like we did that hustle. We waited in the lines. We did the whole grind yeah. and it, it wound up working out. You know, obviously, that's a but... smart thing to do with other people. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Cause there's, there's, there's the support group aspect of it. And then there's the, Oh my God, I got a nibble at this table over there. Yeah. And it's like, this guy seems like he might be open to it. Like, you're covering more ground all of you at once, and you can kind of regroup. Right. You know, you go away, you come back, you go away, you come back. And when um, we talked to Steve Bissett, and he touched on it, but I don't think he went into it in as much detail as I, I know I've spoken about it with him before, of 
all the roommates in that house in New Jersey in the first year of Joe Kubert's school. Right. You know, ridiculous and amount of talent. I mean, look, it's it's like the studio. You remember that book, the Dragon Dream Press studio yep. book, and it was Wrightson, Barry Windsor Smith, Mike Kaluta, and Jeff Jones. It's hard to believe. All man. sharing a studio together. Yeah. I mean, that's like that's everybody I was obsessed with in, yeah. in the nineteen seventies. Like before I knew who was drawing the comics. Right. I knew who Bernie Wrightson was. Oh, yeah. You know, I saw that signature on the cover, and and then I I accidentally bought a Mike Kaluta cover, and I was like, he has my same initials. Oh right, MWK. You know, oh really? The W. Yeah, yeah. And so, um, I I actually had a really really funny um interaction with him at Comic Con, like ninety four, ninety five, or something, and he wrote something really funny in 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 my copy of um of the studio, which made my my friends laugh hysterically, but the um. He's also like, you know, one of the all-time greatest yeah. illustrators. He's like the yeah. Mooka of comics. And so having that group of people, you know, and, and your roommates and, you know, talking about living in a not-so-great neighborhood. Is this East St. Louis? No, we were in Kansas City. Oh, in Kansas time. City. Yeah. So we were in art school in Kansas, in Kansas City. Um, that's right. East St. Yeah. Louis is a whole other yeah. thing. Like that's – growing up in St. Louis, everybody would be like, don't go to East St. Louis. Yeah, you know, my yeah. parents and stuff. They'd be like, and of course, it's kind of like the city I grew up in in North of Boston, Lynn, Massachusetts. Yeah, it's, it's got the rhyme, you know, Lynn, Lynn, city of sin. You never come out the way you went in. And Whoa, um, yeah, like people that's an stay. Elaborate warning. Like <laughs> people just drive through and they do not stop. Like it, it's in the in the eighties in that era. Yeah, as things started getting more you know nihilistic and and narcissistic in in the world that you know my bike got stolen and I'm like oh this isn't the same town I grew up in like I knew oh, that at 12 right and then the right. GE kind of went out of it did GE did to Lynn what um General Motors did to Flint Michigan oh, a little bit man. like it really just like it became terrible heroin um crack like it was the really whole, bad the it whole community wiped changed. out yeah and so um it's you know growing up around that and seeing it and seeing it reflected in British comics yeah you know You'd become enamored with those, but you're right. It's like you know the in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Right. You know, I mean, people who don't know Bridgeport, Connecticut is is the most violent, one of the most violent cities in America. Yeah. And it's sandwiched between two very wealthy communities. It's crazy, man. And Kansas City was that way too when I was mm-hmm. there. It's like you'd be in one pretty good neighborhood, and then like two streets over, you'd be in the projects. Yeah. And like the neighborhood surrounding the art school was rough, man. Yeah. And I know it's cleaned up now. I'm actually going there in a couple of weeks to do uh, a presentation. And Local a, boy makes and, good. And a, and, a, <laughs> and a project with the illustration class. But, you know, our first week there of uh, orientation, they were like, all the girls should probably go. We recommend that you go out and get mace and attach it to your keychain and walk in groups like in the evening wow. around the neighborhood outside the campus. Yeah. So just to kind of let you know, go ahead and get yourself some mace maybe a weapon of some sort. It's like, wait, what? Wow. We're, we're at this school. Our parents had like, just dropped us off yeah. and have gone back to their respective cities. Yeah. And now we're all these weirdo art kids with shaved heads, like yeah. kind of cut loose in this cracked out neighborhood. Yeah. And I mean, it, it actually taught me street smarts. Yeah. But, That's funny um, because, you know, I feel the same way that, you know, when I came out to LA and I was on Hollywood Boulevard during the riots. You know, oh, our building was on fire. Really? The roof, the roof was on fire. It got put out pretty quickly. Um, the comic book shop got looted by musicians. Damn. Not by, right. <laughs> not, not no. by disenfranchised minorities. <laughs> but um, that, um, you know, it was just a really 
really interesting time. Like I saw every bad thing happen one after the other. It was like, then the earthquake, you know, and then the fires, you know, it was like the, the riots, the earthquake, the fires. And this amazing thing happened, which is that I think the population of Delaware that always moves to California every year moved back. Really? Yeah. It equal to the population of Delaware moves to Cal moves to Los Angeles, I think, every year. Wow. Or they did in in the early nineties. Right. And then there was this big reversal. And so it, it was interesting because the traffic wasn't as bad for a couple of years and then it got really bad again. It was again. noticeable. Yeah. People must have thought that it was like Armageddon during that time, man. I mean, well, just, I wasn't here obviously, but just yeah. seeing video footage of the LA riots and yeah. now living here, the idea of major areas of the city just being on fire yeah. and people running through the streets is, is insane. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was pretty crazy. And, and like, you know, the, you, you're never too far from that. Like a lot of people don't realize that we're at any given time, we're never really too far from that. It just takes one incredibly bad decision yeah. by somebody in charge and a equal, equally bad or good idea executed poorly response right. to that to cause complete and total havoc. Yeah. And, um, so I mean, yeah. The beautiful the beautiful thing is that when we lived on Hollywood Boulevard and Yucca Street was like Yucca and Wilcox was the most dangerous corner in America. Right. That um they never messed with us because they knew we didn't have any money. Yes, that's kind of how we were in art school. So I figure that they probably wised up that you know yeah. a, a couple of years before you they had they had maybe mugged a couple of students like these kids got no money this right. isn't worth it these are just flaky yeah. weirdo art kids you know yeah. it. it it's weird because, like, being from St. Louis too, it's it's sometimes disheartening to know that that city is has this really strange, obvious segregation thing going mm-hmm. on there. And I go back there; my whole family is still there. I love going back and visiting, but it is an odd feeling to know, like, oh, but some major stuff has gone down yeah. here. Obviously, that went made global yeah. news. You know, like ferguson yeah which was this this strange city slightly outside of st louis that no one really talked about when i was a kid we knew about it yeah um but the fact that that became a global globally recognized thing all all me and my old st louis buddies were like can you believe this this is a weird tragic thing that's uh going on i don't know my wife who's Japanese went to um went to one year of high school in St. Louis. Mm. And um Where did she go? Oh, she could tell you. I I, I don't know, but okay. I know I think it's the same high school that James Gunn went to. Oh, James Gunn. And Stephen Diacchetti, okay. photographer. Yeah. And therefore probably also um Oh, the filmmaker who did um 54 Charlie Mopic who just passed away not too long ago. Oh, who's really? another like the first of that crew of St. Louis guys that came out. Oh, to I, Hollywood. Didn't, I didn't know that. Yeah. And um, I got to meet James Gunn. I, I know you, get, you at least think, have the St. Louis connection. I yeah. We know some of the same people. You do. <laughs> yeah. So there's yeah, there's a lot of crossover. Yeah. But, the, um, you know, it is funny. We, you you start out in one place and you go someplace else. You come back and what's the, the is it Thomas Wolfe that said you can never go home again? But, um, you know, that when I go back now, I'm super interested in the history of the area that I came up in was yeah. I could not move out fast enough. You know, once, once it went from 17 to 18, I could not get out of my yeah. town, my city fast enough. Same thing happened to me 
and now I go, LA where you have everything. Yeah. What, what's your vacation from? Your vacation is from everything. Right. So that you can go back and, and take a little bit of time and, and diffuse a little bit. Like yeah. if, whether it's two days or three days or two weeks. I, I'm the type of guy that if I go on vacation in America for more than three or four days that I, I my skin starts to crawl. Like I, it's... I'm getting pulled back to Los Angeles. Yeah. You know, and, There's nothing to invisible do. Lasso. Man, like well, I usually, I only travel for business for combo mm-hmm. conventions or art related things. So I'm always traveling with a purpose, which I like, but even if I have a couple days downtime in those cities, I'll explore, do my thing. But after a couple of days, I, I get that itch too, mm-hmm. where I either want to come back to my studio and get back to work because I'm inspired. That's the thing. Or I just sort of run out of things to do. And yeah. I'm not like a just hang out at the beach and do nothing guy. Like, yeah, I'm just not. I. I mean, look at my skin. <laughs> right. I'm see-through. I'm just not <laughs> the kind of guy that like my way of relaxing is to just work or be yeah. in, doing work in my sketchbook or do so when people say you just lounge around do nothing to me i'm like that sounds horrible yeah i've, <laughs> like, I've taken i take doing nothing so seriously that there's i've developed a science to it that it has to be absolutely nothing it has to be like laying on the floor and not even staring at an object but directly at the ceiling and there can be nothing in my line of vision right right and that usually lasts about an hour and then i'm yeah. done it's like your form of meditation <laughs> yeah it's, it is wow. I mean, you know, you do what you can to occupy yourself, yeah. but I'm I'm glad that I have a career though that traveling is an excuse for yeah. me to get out. But because I think people need frequent breaks from LA. Yeah. I think living here all year round and not leaving can be hazardous. Oh, it can to your be a bad. It absolutely um, is. Yeah. So so these frequent trips I take are a great little burst of you know a break from it. I get inspired, like I said, and then I'm come back. And I'm ready to 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 hit the studio yeah. again. Like there's a lot of areas that I I would love to visit for three or four days. In, yeah. You know, in, in the U.S. and, and elsewhere. If, when with international travel, the amount of time it takes to get to places makes me feel like I have to stay there longer. Right. You know, because right. it's going to take, I'm going to lose a day and a half in travel. Yeah. So that it's like, uh, 10 days. Right. You know, and I mean, if, if I'm going to go to Paris, I could probably spend three weeks there, but I'd probably be complaining 15 days in and the French would kill me. Paris is amazing, man. It is amazing. And Vienna is amazing. Yeah, and Austria. I been to Vienna. It's gorgeous. And, you know, there's, there's, I love Japan. I love, I love Tokyo. Uh, I love Kyoto. And, and um, my wife's family lives between Osaka and Kyoto. Oh, okay. But, um, so you guys know people there? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, her family's there. I need to figure out how to get my art to get me over to Japan. Get to Japan? Well, you know. Let me know if you I have know a few ideas. people. I know a few people. <laughs> the, um, the art Were market's you... not very bullish right now in Japan. Okay. And actually, all the money in the Japanese art market is happening in Singapore or Hong Kong. And what are they into? classic stuff like um mid-century it's sort of the same art that's getting big in america like uh, the japanese like japanese art mm-hmm. um or they like names that they know so they like they know warhol right if someone hits a certain level of fame they become fascinated by it on the non-blue chip kind of lower end um or middle of the market you've got um illustrators that people like and so um in japan no one like comic artists don't really sell their art yeah. They keep it and someone builds a museum for them. Right. And, and they exhibit the entire the entire body collection, of work. the entire body of work. Yeah. And it's it's kind of a it's an interesting way to do it, but I mean they're they're so well paid because there's such a huge consumer market for comics, for right. manga, 
that it's it's viable. And the same is true in Europe. I mean, and I've I've talked about this a lot on the on the show that in Europe, Fumetti, you know, mm-hmm. in Italy or Bandesne in France, um, those artists are incredibly well paid. Yes. They get tremendous tax breaks. Um, a lot of the the comic creators in um, England have moved to Ireland because Ireland gives huge um, tax benefits to artists. Really? Yeah. And some in, in Scotland, I think, has followed suit too. So there's a lot of people that live in Scotland and wow. Glasgow. Um, I I'm going to go to Ireland. I'm part Irish. So maybe that, you know, I can trace my mom's. You might be able to. Family. They're the, the Cunninghams. That's like the most. Uh, it's almost as obvious as Kennedy with yeah. the the Irish roots. Uh, Very happy days. Yeah, completely. Know, Richie Cunningham. I was like, you know, my mom never went back, but I was like, you you should you should go back. My sisters and went back. Trace the family, man. It's we went back to County Cork. I think I'm related to Steve Dillon. Really? Yeah, because we're related to the Dillons, and they're from the same area, County Cork. Oh, that that's awesome. I had a conversation with him about this in 1995, I think. Uh, okay. I took him out for a couple of pints, him and Garth Ennis. That's funny. I thought he he was British, but he's Irish? Dillon's an Irish name. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Well, as we as we go further down the lineage, this is this is going to be like the the most widely broadcast private conversation, but the um, I think that well, I'm having a, a great chance. time. I am too. We're gonna we're gonna take this show on the road and grab a couple points across the street after this. Let's but, do it. Um, and I welcome any any listeners who want to do the same. You can contact me, and and we hang out. We're not snobs. We love you guys. Um, you know, w- without listeners, there there is no show, and. We can't kind of wax poetic about this stuff. And, and I, I hope, you know, that when we're talking about these these types of things, that it touches something, you know, personal in your experience, but that it's a little bit of an inspiration because, you know, like you say, it's you come you come from an area, you leave it, and you realize what it was that you came from. And that's kind of the way that people learn to tell stories because you end up telling your origin story and then right. you end up realizing that if people start nodding off that you're not telling a very good story but the um that i think that it helps sharpen your skill set knowing that other people can have success in a certain way gives you something else to try and certainly the amount of of different accesses that you have to what you do with what you create can give people a lot of secondary means of thinking about how they can make it and doing what they do yeah so I want to thank you for being on the show. Um, hit me with some websites. Of course, uh, jimmafood.com. That's just my name, J-I-M-M-A-H-F-O-O-D. You can get everything there. And then my Instagram, Twitter, all that, social media, it's all my name as well. Mm-hmm. I just kind of keep it simple with the branding. And you can check out uh, – I, I do daily updates on like Instagram. Like I'm just relentlessly posting visuals, my art, stuff I'm working on, sketchbook stuff, just kind of a – daily it's almost like my daily journal is i'm gonna have i'm gonna have to have you do mine because we i don't think we've set up our instagram here <laughs> that's my, that's my favorite thing just because it's it's visual based i love instagram and yeah. so when i got on it like three or four years ago it still hadn't quite blown up yet yeah. so for me i was like oh this is just visual i can just crush this with yeah. my art you know that's all i do i don't post photos really from my life yep. or like the sandwich i'm eating or my shoes or anything. It's just like nonstop, relentless crushing with my visuals. That's and people perfect. would either, I'm assuming, like it or get so sick of it because they're like, this guy is just more drawings, more girls, more butts. Like, what is, like, this guy is never giving up with this. It's like, that's right. That's my 
That's my thing. That's right? the aim. <laughs> awesome. Well, hey, man, thanks again. Thank you so much for having me, Matt. And um, again, you've been listening to uh, Pod Sequentialism. I am Matt Kennedy. You've enjoyed listening to Jim of Food. And um, we hope you'll tune in again for another episode. 